were chances missed to use the military at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm picking up perhaps the armed forces, the MOD itself, could have been more utilised in the early stages at cabinet level. Why dealing with military complaints is key for recruitment. You want to recruit the best talent, but women and, and ethnic minorities feel that they will not be able to progress as far as their talent and potential will allow. That is going to be a disincentive for people to join. And taking to the skies with the military's Covid Aviation Task Force. Most of my crews are experienced Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, operational pilots from across the piece, and this is very different for them. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. The restrictions on daily life imposed in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic have been eased a little in England this week. But hundreds are still dying every day and the military is still playing a huge role in responding. So it may seem like an odd time to set up an inquiry into the way the forces have been used to assist civilian authorities. But the Commons Defence Select Committee has announced plans for an investigation. The committee's chairman, Tobias Elwood, spoke to me a little earlier and told me he's concerned opportunities may have been missed to exploit military capabilities at the start of the outbreak. I don't know, but I'm picking up that uh, perhaps the armed forces, the MOD itself, could have been more utilised in the early stages at cabinet level. You know, a lot of them are my colleagues. They are policy specialists. They are not delivery specialists. They work on creating the, the rules, if you like, the implementation, the delivery of that is actually for the operational capabilities for those on the front line. For example, you know, Matt Hancock should not be going around trying to procure PPE from across the world. This is where the armed forces are very good at coming in. They don't need to be experts themselves, but they ask the difficult questions. So it seems that ventilators are important. Have you got the necessary oxygen supplies for all the ventilators? Are you able to get it all around the country? This is affects the elderly. Where do the elderly spend a lot of their time? In care homes. Do we now need to look at that? So these are the great questions. This is the approach that our armed forces are trained to do from Sanders all the way through to Shrivenham. This is their mindset. This is what they do. And I think that's a great asset for any government to have. It's appreciated across the world, the thinking that our, the cognitive thinking that our armed forces bring. And I don't believe that they've been utilised to their, to their full. You think they've been shut out? That's a strong word. Let's investigate. That's why we're doing the inquiry and find out. Let's, let's find that out. There was a preparation for this kind of eventuality with an exercise several years ago at Cygnus. Do you think the lessons were learnt from that? I don't know the answer to that, but I want to know the answer. It's exactly the important question. If we do have these exercises, which are designed as a rehearsal, to check our capabilities, to learn from that, to recognise what we need to do to be prepared in the future, then yes, let's look at that exercise. What involvement did the armed forces play and uh, did we take the lessons away? Uh, so very, very important question to ask. And yet you're launching this inquiry when we're still struggling with this pandemic. Is it not too soon to do so? It's always a good question as to when do you look back at things? Is it, is it worth doing when the whole event is actually over? Like I said, this, this is an enduring crisis. We won't be out of this until the vaccine is found. That could be over a year away. And there are some initial phases that we need to look at and understand. I want to be able to speak to people whilst these issues are fresh in their mind. You've been talking about um, a Chilcot-esque kind of inquiry being launched into the way this pandemic has been handled in this country. So making comparisons with the investigation into the Iraq war, do you think the fallout from this is going to be quite stunning? 
Well, I'm pleased to say that we live in a democracy whereby any government is willing to look back at what happened when in a major event such as this takes place. We had one after the Falklands uh, campaign, where Iraq as well, as you mentioned, and the government has conceded that and, and recognized it and absolutely embraced the fact that we do need to look back at all the decision-making uh, that, that has taken place. Many media commentators are critical about particular decisions that happened three or four weeks ago. Were we too slow in recognizing the this pathogen, comparing it with the flu rather than the contagion rate that it actually is? Big questions, but they're not for now. They will be for inquiry uh, into the future, of which the armed forces, I'm sure, uh, will, will come under scrutiny as well. This whole experience is going to completely blow out of the water the way we think about defence and the way people think about defence spending with the review imminent. I think that's absolutely right. Um, biosecurity isn't a word that you hear too often. We're going to hear a lot more of it now. You can see how this has fundamentally disrupted our economy, but also the economies across the world. We're going to go through a very dangerous period post-COVID-19. World order was not in good nick before this. Let's be, be frank about this. You know, It was a very fragile state uh, with countries following their own rules, uh, distractions. The United States disengaged, if you like, from the international table. And now we see, I'm afraid, many of the ingredients we saw in the build-up to the Second World War. Um, we see international organizations unable to yield any sense of authority, if you like, in the same way that the League of Nations wasn't able to do. The United Nations is paralyzed because of the veto. The World Health Organization, WTO as well, aren't functioning as they should do. We have countries then becoming more siloed, more introvert, uh, breaking down the um, uh, the uh, uh, global supply chains and you know, populist governments now being elected to look after themselves. Very dangerous set of parameters that could easily lead to greater conflict. That was Tobias Elwood. Well, joining me as ever is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, what a bleak picture he's painting. Do you agree? Yeah, I think it's worse than that. Last year, there appeared a document in, in Whitehall, which was fundamentally a crisis report on what crises one might expect in the next 18 months. The military read it and prepared for it, and the politicians didn't. And so when time came, and the government said, right, now what can the military help us with? They knew very well what the military would help them with, and it worked perfectly well once it did start. Should they have done more sooner? Well, they can't do more sooner unless the cabinet gives them authority to, to do so. They can't just go along and set up a nightingale or, or whatever. So they did what they did best. And Christopher, we saw in a more benign way at the Olympics eight years ago, the way the government called on the military when they were struggling to cope. Isn't the solution to that to strengthen civilian responses rather than militarising it from the start? Well, the civilian responses have to come from cabinet. And if the cabinet is a bit busy getting out of Europe and getting getting rid of the prime minister at the time. They probably the attention is not where it should have been, and that may be one part of the inquiry. Christopher, stay with us. Well, in announcing this inquiry, Tobias Elwood cited a longer-term worry that the outbreak could provide cover for nations to worsen existing tensions. The integrated review, the big study into what our defence should look like, has now been postponed itself. And yet here we are, the threats of the world changing quite rapidly, geopolitical uh, influences moving um, quite uh, significantly because of this, this virus. I fear that what we knew was coming over the hill, that uh, you know, a shift in power base from the United States over to China has actually been expedited 
because of this uh, outbreak. Well, Britain is not alone in those worries. This week, US bomber squadrons flew coordinated missions over the Indo-Pacific and Europe, a deliberate show of strength, according to Michael Evans from The Times. They decided, and this is sort of strategic command and the US Air Force, decided that they would have a sort of coordinated presence, if you like, in the region, both uh, Indochina and in Europe, uh, of their uh, main strategic bombers, their three strategic bombers. And so they have literally sent off B-2s, B-52s and B-1Bs, the Lancers, off into these various regions for a show of force to prove that the US may be having trouble with coronavirus. It's still fully capable to uh, send its deterrent forces wherever it wants. These are not uh, insignificant planes. Some of these planes can carry nuclear weapons. If this was designed to send a message, it doesn't seem to be a very subtle one. I agree with that. I don't think it's subtle at all. I don't think uh, China uh, will have been able to ignore it. They're fully aware of what these planes can carry. They don't go around carrying nuclear weapons on these sort of exercises, clearly. But the Chinese know what they're capable of. And they, they know that the Americans can launch their bombers from, you know, thousands of miles away back at their base and arrive in their area with air refueling and then they go back home again. And it's uh, pretty impressive. China, though, has also been asserting itself in its region. I think that's what's worrying the Pentagon in particular at the moment, because China's obviously had problems with coronavirus. It's where it originated from. But they also, I think, see this time in the world where people are, they hope, looking inward rather than outward, in particular the United States, and that this might be a good time to ratchet up their own operations and ambitions in the region, South China Sea, East China Sea. They've been using their fishing vessels and other patrol ships and whatever to coerce, if you like, American allies in the region. This has been, you know, I think a deliberate attempt by Beijing to exploit, take advantage of the pandemic to uh, pursue their ambitions uh, pretty aggressively. There are some reports, apparently, that there are people in Beijing who are pushing for a real show of force, a possible invasion of Taiwan. This is a huge issue in China. President Jinping has made it quite clear that, you know, his ambition is for reunification between Taiwan and the mainland. He's not ever said in his speeches, as far as I'm aware, I want to do this by, you know, 2022 or 2021 or whatever. So I don't think there's a timetable. The Chinese are sort of patient, if you like, but I don't think they're that patient. And uh, Taiwan is their ultimate goal. There's no question about that. And this is what seriously worries the Pentagon, because they know uh, they have a defense pact with Taiwan. And if uh, China invades Taiwan, the uh, Pentagon will have to try to do something about it. I don't think there are many people who think uh, they could stop Chinese from invading, successfully invading Taiwan if they wanted to do so. Whether they would do it now while the pandemic going on, you know, I think that's just sort of speculation and rumour and, and a bit of um, ambition going on in social media in China. But I doubt that they will actually do such a thing. And then, of course, there is the Donald Trump factor that we know that the US president blows hot and cold on China, mostly cold, currently is blaming them in quite aggressive terms for the coronavirus outbreak that he is struggling with in the United States and hoping for re-election in six months 
time, the temptation to be seen to be confronting China might be overwhelming. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's what he has been doing. I think he would like to have a good relationship with uh, President Jinping. But things have gone pretty sour for some time now, the trade war initially, and now over the pandemic, there is a, a lot of vitriolic rhetoric going on. And I find, think that's probably uh, not going to improve between now and November when the presidential election takes place. That was Michael Evans from The Times speaking to Paul Osborne. Well, Christopher, as we heard there, a big decision to send those bombers and a less than subtle signal. Sending the B-1 Bravo, the, the cruise missile bomber there, is probably even more important than sending the B-2 with its nuclear sort of capability. The thing to remember with this is that uh, General Mark Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he's been working on a plan for about a month. Last Saturday morning, he went to see the president and he said, I think we go. And the president said, you go. And the fact that they can do this and demonstrate that they are willing to do this is a clear hint to the Chinese, look, just cool it at the moment. Just cool this thing about uh, Taiwan. This is Zitrap. Now, five years ago, Nicola Williams took on the job of the first ever service complaints ombudsman for the armed forces. The former barrister who became a judge called her role a huge game changer in confronting bullying, harassment and discrimination in the military. Well, five years on, she's published her last annual report before she steps down, saying the complaint system is neither efficient, effective or fair. I spoke to her a little earlier and she told me it's alarming that more than 90% of personnel who feel they have a valid complaint wouldn't make one. That sadly is right. And those figures actually are not our figures. They're actually figures that are coming from the military themselves. Roughly about 93% of people that could legitimately make a service complaint did not want to do that. And that's across the piece. It's not about bullying, harassment or discrimination in particular. It's across the piece, all types of complaints. And the responses that they give for not doing that are usually pretty much the same. My life will be made very difficult if I make a complaint. It will take far too long once I make the complaint and nothing ultimately will be done about it. I'm very, very disappointed that after all this time, despite what we as an office have said to people about encouraging them to make complaints, that those figures are still so distressingly high. I will say that what I've seen over the four years that I've been in post is that there is an increased public trust and confidence in my office, but that doesn't necessarily translate into an increased public trust and confidence in how the services as a whole will deal with complaints. And more specifically, how concerned are you that women make up just over one in 10 personnel in the armed forces, but close to one in four complainants? I'm actually very concerned about it because it's disproportionate in terms of uh, female service personnel and their representation in complaints is disproportionate to their numbers in the services. Women are also more likely than men to complain about bullying specifically. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And you can see from the figures in our annual report, there's a disproportionality with female service personnel and also BAME service personnel as well. It's 21% of men that would make those types of complaints, but 39% of women that would make those types of complaints. Last year, you said that the MOD must do more to root out racism. You said it was prevalent within the forces and those from a minority background are far more likely to make a bullying complaint. Well, in terms of the percentage, it isn't as 
high, although this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a difference between bad and worse, I guess. But, you know, the percentage of BAME service personnel making a bullying harassment or discrimination complaint, the disparity isn't as great as it is between female and male personnel. It's 23% white service personnel that would make that kind of complaint as opposed to 33% BAME service personnel. But if you think about the percentage of BAME service personnel within the armed forces, it is nowhere near 33%, very, very far from it. So there's a massive disproportionality between the number of ethnic minority service personnel and the people that, the numbers that would make a complaint. When, when you started in this role, you said the complaint system was not efficient, effective or fair I believe you still think that, don't you? I do. But I will say, to be fair um, to the services, I have seen improvements. I have seen from my first annual report to now, I have seen them. I've called them the green shoots of improvement, but they are still green shoots. And after four years, I would expect to see a little bit more than the shoot. So what has got better and what still needs to be done? I think the service chiefs, so the, the, the heads of the Navy, Army and RAF, I do believe that the people who are currently holding those positions, have a very different ethos and very different belief around the importance of service complaints and would encourage people to make a legitimate complaint. I do believe that's a good thing. They see the importance of service complaints and they want to see that disproportionality in terms of female and BAME service complaints presence in the system to be levelled out because, putting it bluntly, if there is a, a, a personnel shortfall and you want to recruit... And you want to recruit the best talent from all parts of the population. But women and, and ethnic minorities feel that they will not be able to progress as far as their talent and potential would allow. And if something did happen that their complaint would not be dealt with properly, well, that is going to be a disincentive for people to join. In terms of the way that complaints are handled, are you satisfied that that's done efficiently enough? The one thing that does concern me is the length of time it takes to resolve a complaint. 90% of complaints are supposed to be resolved within 24 weeks. In most civilian walks of life to do with HR-type complaints, they will be resolved in 24 weeks. But at no point since I have been in post, and in fact at no point since that metric has existed, which predates the time I was in post, at no point has any of the services actually hit that 90% mark. Now, I think people might think, well, I'm having a terrible time, I'm going to put in this service complaint, I know it will be bad for a couple of months, but it's going to be over and done within six months and I can deal with that. That's one thing. If, in fact, it's going to take you three, four, five, six years, then you might be very, very disinclined to put in a service complaint. What would you say to that 90% or so of people who, who do have a problem but are not coming forward for all the reasons that they've expressed? They just think it's a waste of time, that, that it might take too long to resolve and that, that, you know, they're just not going to get listened to. I would say that in the time that I've been in post, I've seen the trust and confidence of servicemen and women in our office, they might not trust the whole service complaints system, but they trust our office. So I would say that if you trust our office and you think you have a legitimate service complaint to make, you can make it to our office. You don't have to go through your chain of command. Our office was always intended to be an alternative point of contact to start your complaint. It ultimately will have to go back to the service, not your chain of command them to look at and then you can still come back to us but what I would say to people is put us to the test we are doing our very best our office has only been going for since the beginning of 2016 the RAF which is the youngest of the three services has been going for 102 years I only have 10 investigators so we are really punching above our weight with we were small we're agile and um, we're punching above our weight so I would say if you don't trust anything else put us to the test 
That was Nicola Williams. Well, when the report was presented to Parliament earlier this week, Defence Minister Johnny Mercer said its recommendations would be considered fully by the MOD and that a formal response would follow once that work is complete. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, you can sense a certain frustration listening to Nicola Williams that she doesn't feel she's been able to make quite as much progress as she'd hoped. The military is a different organisation to the the rest of the world, almost. Let's say you're you're, you're a soldier and you've got a problem you know jolly well that you've got to sort of report that problem and it goes up the line to the colonel eventually. And that's different. That keeps the problem away from everybody else. If there is a problem, it's very difficult to get into the system to fix it. And that's what she's effectively still saying. And she, as a person, uh, when she was when, when she was important, they were surprised at her appointment, this judge appointment, certainly at, the, at senior levels. The one big thing on her side, the present chief of the defence staff, General Carter, when he was CGS, chief of the general staff, said, we've got to listen, we've got to make it easier for people to to say, listen, I'm not happy with what's going on. That's the only way we will find out, and therefore the way of doing this through is the Ombudsman's office. But if you've only got 10 investigators, and eventually you've got to pass it back through the military system, it's a hard job. Let's see how she gets on. She's got till the end of December, hasn't she, till she leaves, so we'll see how she gets on. Uh, Let's go back to the pandemic now, and while restrictions on training are being eased, the lockdowns presented challenges across the forces. In Northern Ireland, two Royal Irish have had to come up with creative solutions to keep reserve units active and engaged. Their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Simon Baxter, spoke to our reporter, Fiona Cameron. Our training has changed. We're having to virtually train from home, which is difficult, but it's allowed us to do a bit of a pause on direction and guidance and to have a bit of a rethink. One of the other highlights you had in your calendar for this year, of course, was Australia. What's happening with that? Uh, Absolutely. I would have been in Australia right now visiting our 35 soldiers. Yeah, extremely disappointing that we couldn't get out there, which would have been a fantastic platoon level exercise. Next year, you know, we were looking at Exercise Northern Strike, which is uh, 150 soldiers out to America to conduct training with the Michigan Guard. So we've still got things in the in the pot and we've still got things on the horizon. However, the, the training for this year has had to change. Your one big thing has always been retention, keeping the soldiers interested, looking after their welfare. How have you managed to do that through all of this? Retention to me is absolutely key. And by putting in place remote virtual training packages, which are really, really innovative, that's one angle of trying to retain our soldiers. Also, it's uh, it's trying to forecast ahead for our annual deployment exercise and what that looks like and how we can then sort of reset the battalion to ensure that we've got good constructive training to ensure that we keep those people cohesed and feeling part of the the bigger picture and part of the team. Simon, do you have a message for the troops, your own troops who are deployed and obviously just in general who have been on the front line of this fight against COVID-19? You know, I've said this before, but I'm immensely proud to be standing here as the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. The team that I've got around me is absolutely fantastic. They are very, very loyal, very supportive. And at the foremost thinking for everybody here is about our young soldiers and how we can best support them. Because during this time, you know, we need to think about their mental well-being, how we can reach out to them and how we can communicate with them. But everybody in 2 Royal Irish, this is a big team. And we are all working together very, very hard with whatever the task is 
presented to us right now and they are doing an absolutely fantastic job. That was the commanding officer of Two Royal Irish, Lieutenant Colonel Simon Baxter, talking to Fiona Cameron. Well, in Germany, there's been some relaxation of the restrictions, but life is still very different. Here's Rosie de Costa. British Army Germany's had 92 people in self-isolation so far, although none have tested positive with COVID-19. Most people are working from home and have been since lockdown was introduced in March. The German government has started to relax restrictions. Most shops reopened last week and the rest opened on Monday. North Rhine-Westphalia, where BAG is based, has also allowed restaurants to reopen this week, so it seems busier on the roads and I've definitely seen more people walking and cycling when I've been travelling to and from work. We have to wear face masks to go shopping and on public transport. It doesn't seem as strange to see people wearing masks as it did last week, though. On Monday, restrictions on socialising relaxed slightly. A household is now allowed to spend time with people from one other household, but we have to choose carefully because it has to be the same household you mix with until things are relaxed further. Although we haven't been able to see anyone for the last two months, there's been a real sense of community. People dropping groceries off on people's doorsteps if necessary, lots of rainbows in the windows around the residential patches and plenty of virtual meetups going on. That was Rosie de Costa in Germany. Well, part of the military's response to the pandemic is a dedicated aviation task force providing round-the-clock helicopter support to the NHS. Already they've flown five potentially life-saving missions, evacuating critically ill patients from remote locations. The task force is run from RF Benson in Oxfordshire. From there, Simon Newton sent this report. So in this situation, the patient was critically ill, but we, we didn't know um, whether he had coronavirus or not, so we erred on the side of caution. Squadron leader Johnny Longland has tours of Afghanistan and Africa under his belt, but this was something different, a medivac mission to a remote Scottish island to airlift a critically ill patient with suspected coronavirus. So we shut down in a, in a field just on the eastern edge of the Isle of Arran, and there was an ambulance there with critical care teams that had, had supported that patient through the road move. It was only about a 20-minute flight just across the, uh, across the sea. We shut down at Cross House Hospital for the team there to unload the patient and take them to the intensive care unit. Johnny and his crew are members of 33 Squadron based at RAF Benson in Oxfordshire. A few weeks earlier they'd been deployed to Kinloss Barracks in Scotland, the northern tip of a nationwide aviation task force. More than a dozen helicopters are involved, from Army Wildcats to RAF Pumas and Chinooks, plus Royal Navy Merlins. The force dispersed across the country. Group Captain Adam Wardrop is the station commander at Benson and also in charge of the task force. Uh, you're right, most of my crews are experienced Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, operational pilots from across the piece, and this is very different for them. Taking essentially a military equipment designed for the battlefield and personnel that are used to being on the battlefield into a civilian operation like this where we're dealing with civilian passengers and critically ill civilian patients, NHS clinicians, is a very different task. Coincidentally, Johnny and his crew had been in the Western Isles just a few days before their emergency mission, training local medics and Coast Guard staff how to operate from a helicopter. Also on board that night was Flight Sergeant Stephen Cassidy, the Puma's rear crewman. The guys that were at the Isle of Iron who were dealing with this casualty were also the guys that we'd spoken to previously about how they could use us and what we could do for them. Um, they told us what the casualty needed. He was a, a critical patient who just needed to be moved to Kilmarnock uh, Hospital. So we had a conversation about how to load him, what they require in flight, uh, what the, the priorities were, whether that was time or stability. Um, loaded the passenger and off we went. The military aircrew wear PPE throughout the flight, a 
and each helicopter is fully sanitised once it returns to base. We kind of hand over the aircraft to our engineer specialists who have their own standard operating procedure for disinfecting the entire aircraft cabin. That's everything from the floors through the high-touch areas even into the soundproofing in the ceilings and walls. So they really do a good job of making sure the aircraft is fully clean before it goes off on the next mission. One of the task force helicopters carried out a similar mission to Jersey a few days earlier. Chinooks have also been used to transport NHS staff to Nightingale hospitals in Bristol, Harrogate and Sunderland. While the task force is headquartered at Benson, its coverage extends to every corner of the country. Group Captain Wardrop. Oh, they've adapted really well. I mean, as the commander of the force, I'm incredibly honoured. Not only have they got a purpose, they're very much doing their bit for the country. And whilst they're used to operating in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, what they're seeing here is a real benefit to their families, their friends. For Johnny and Stephen and all the RAF, Army and Royal Navy personnel involved in the Aviation Task Force, this is something out of the ordinary. Putting skills and aircraft designed for the battlefield into a very different conflict. Supporting the NHS and the nation wherever they're needed. That was Simon Newton with that report. Uh, Before we go, Christopher, Boris Johnson got into some difficulty this week over his televised coronavirus address. Um, Some complained too vague, too opaque, and we've heard again and again in the last few weeks that the thing the military has brought to this crisis is a sense of clarity, cutting through all the waffle. Um, Should the Prime Minister perhaps take a little military advice about his speech, or do you think more nuanced speech at this time is what's necessary as we move towards a gradual unlocking of society? Well, there's good history on this, you know. Anybody listening to Nelson's speech in 1805, they would have been inspired. Mind you, he got killed within the hour. But, you know, uh, Lloyd George, Churchill, Thatcher, Blair, they wouldn't have taken any advice and didn't take any advice from the military. I saw a recording of General Allenbrook on a platform and he was asked to speak in response to something that uh, a minister had said. And Allenbrook got up and he stuck his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets and he said, cock up. Cock up. <laughs> now, Alan Brooke had a very way, short way with words, and he didn't use too many. And I think it doesn't matter if you're a prime minister or whoever you are, including me, I suppose, who really ought to take that sort of advice. Cock up. Do you know what? We certainly wouldn't have heard Boris saying that in his speech. Well, it probably would, but it would be in Greek. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher, and thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.